invite you to turn in your Bible this evening to the book of Psalms, and tonight we'll look at Psalm 31. The book of Psalms, tonight we're looking at Psalm 31. It's a psalm of David. We don't uh, know exactly when this was written. We don't have a historical marker. Uh, many believe that he may have uh, written this while he was on the run from Absalom. That's very possible. Uh, the, the middle portion of the psalm, particularly verse um, 9 and following, seem to uh, would fit that very well. But before we read the psalm, let, if you just look at it, let's just sort of lay out the outline so we get a sense of uh, how it's structured. I think that might be helpful. It, is, um, it can be broken down into two main parts. 1 through 18 is a prayer for God's righteous intervention. And then the second part, 19 through 24, uh, thanksgiving to God and then a call to the, um, to the, the believers, to the, the church, the congregation, to love the Lord and trust in Him. And, and in that first section, 1 through 18, you'll notice there's this repeating pattern. Verse 1 through 5 is a prayer for help. We'll see that. Uh, then verse 6, a confession of, uh, of trust in God's love. Uh, that's uh, five, 6 and 8. And then back in verse 9, he's back to prayer. Be gracious to me, Lord, I'm in distress. So 9 through 13, you have uh, that again. And then once again, a confession of trust, verses 14 through 18. I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. And so this pattern of, of, uh, of uh, prayer, help, uh, I trust you, Lord, help. I trust you. That's a lot like what the Christian life seems. Uh, that's how we experience it. Um, and so we're going to read it together, and uh, then we'll unpack some of the wonderful truth here in Psalm 31. Let's give our attention to God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. <clears throat> in, you, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. 
O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, as we tonight study this inspired poem, I pray, Lord, that the truths, the principles, the spiritual knowledge that's here would become ours and that our faith would be strengthened. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us in your word, and so we have open ears tonight. Lord, let us hear in Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 31, we have, as so often in David's Psalms, a, um, we get to watch a man exercise his faith in the midst of a, a, a difficult, trying time. If you uh, go to the gym, I know many of you do. I've been there a couple times myself. Uh, you, you walk in and um, you see these people doing all these strange things with pulleys and weights and running all these different machines. And uh, what, what are they doing? Well, they're exercising. And, and as you look around, you see uh, all sorts of different means of uh, adding strength to your body or just agility, whatever their desire might be. But you're, you're, you get to watch them do it. Well, we get to watch David uh, exercising his faith tonight as he's in a difficult place. We don't know the exact nature of it, but we, we can t tell that this is a, uh, there's dire need here, there's danger here, there's fear here. Uh, David has a deep sense of, of weakness and vulnerability, and, uh, and he cries to the Lord, and, but, but as he does that, he's exercising his faith. And so tonight, we're, we're going to be able to, to watch as that unfolds, and, and we get to then maybe join him and exercise our faith in our times of trial. We see here, if, just if you go to the gym, you see all the equipment, the machines, the weights, the things that, that uh, people use, right, to train their bodies. Well, God has all those sorts of things too, objective things that he puts into our life, things that God uses to strengthen our faith, things that you could point to today, trials and temptations, uh, fears, failures, uh, you, you, can, you can point to them in your very own life today, a diagnosis that was not what you had hoped, uh, a relationship that's deeply, deeply troubled or maybe lost. Uh, a, a, a dream that died, a, a job, a, a door that was closed, a wandering child, a conflict with someone that you care about, and it weighs heavily on your heart. And then there's always the, the reoccurring occurrences of our own sin, whether we give way to anger or to lust, to envy, to lying, to greed, whatever it might be. I was uh, just last week uh, down in... Uh, in Naples and had the opportunity to preach there, preached on 
Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And, and an old guy came up to me afterward and with tears in his eyes just talked about how, um, what, what good news that is. Because, because he says, I, I sometimes still get angry and when I get angry, I get so mean. I just get so mean and I hate it. I hate it. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. That's the experience of a saint. Someone who loves the Lord, uh, wants to serve the Lord, and yet finds the, the burden, the weight of his remaining sin. And maybe tonight you're, you're here and you're, you're, you're feeling overwhelmed. Maybe you're just feeling a weary to the bone. Maybe you're feeling all alone, maybe hopeless, lost, uh, because of real circumstances that God has put into your life. And send friends, this is where then faith goes to work. This is, this is exactly where faith functions. This is where our faith gets exposed, right? When you, when you step up to the weight rack, you're, you're going to be exposed one way or the other. It's going to be revealed what you're physically capable of doing. And, and that's what happens in the trials and things of our life, that, that we, our faith gets exposed for better and for worse, but the point is always to strengthen it. God knows what he's about. The critical thing is knowing what to do with your faith. If you walk into a gym and kind of uh, just um, sort of go about like a tourist and look at things and maybe kick a few barbells, uh, you, you don't really know what it's all for. Well, I think sometimes people don't really know what to do with their faith in the time of trial. They sense that being a Christian is somehow supposed to make this easier. Uh, being a Christian, they thought, meant this wouldn't hurt so much. It wouldn't be so confusing, so confounding, so difficult. Uh, but they're not quite sure exactly um, how... Faith is supposed to help them in this particular circumstance, in this particular moment. Well, I think that's what uh, we want to look at tonight. Because in Psalm 31, we see that faith is, uh, whatever else it is, it is an active leaning on God, an active running to God as a refuge, as a fortress, as our, as our help. Um, the place where we can take refuge and, and where we find goodness and we find wondrous, steadfast love. And as we run to God, as we exercise our faith doing that thing, running to God, we're going to find that our confidence in God grows and our joy in God grows and our fears diminish as we are trusting in his ability to save. I've laid out uh, for you already sort of the broad outline of the, of the text, of the um, psalm. We're not going to have, there's, there's um, 24 verses here. <clears throat> it would take, it would be well worth it, but it would be a good hour and a half probably just to make our way through all those uh, and unpack all the truths. And so what I'd like to do tonight is instead look at, the, uh, look at this psalm from the broad perspective of the uh, how does faith function? And I think verse 1 gives us sort of an outline, and we'll follow that outline for the rest of the psalm. So in verse 1, notice David's uh, his commitment, and then his concern, and then his confidence. His commitment, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And you're going to find verses 3 and 4 and 5 and following. Uh, you're my rock. He's committed to seeking his refuge in God. His concern is, uh, don't let me be put to shame. And we'll unpack that. And then his, his confidence is in the righteousness of God. That's what he appeals to. In your righteousness, deliver me. And so let's look at that together. First in David's, uh, David's commitment. 
He is, um, as the psalm begins, David is letting the Lord know, uh, God, I'm going to take refuge in you. And there's a lot of refuge sort of words here. Notice, uh, you're a rock of refuge, verse 2. Uh, you're my rock and my fortress, verse 3. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to you, Lord. He talks about uh, dwelling in the, in, the, in the shelter of God, that God has stores us in his shelter later on in the psalm. That, that faith, the act of faith then, is, is running to God. And, and it's running to God in, in the recognition there are other options. Uh, David mentions the other, uh, just the, the reality of other options in verse 6, where he says, I hate those who cling to or pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. This is the great um, decision we make in life and when we make in times of trial. Where are we going to turn? Going to cling to the worthless idol? Or are you going to run to the Lord? See, an, an idol is by definition really the thing that you run to in trial, the thing that you cling to when it's scary. When you're hurting, when you're under pressure. Calvin says the heart is an idle factory, and exactly that's exactly what it is. And, and, we, and we all have idle clinging tendencies. We've we figured out in, in our youth already uh, things that make us feel better, things that sort of seem to work. And that's what we tend to go to. Maybe your idol is your reputation. Maybe your idol is a sense of of security. You're, you're not going to let people get close. You're not going to let yourself hurt. Maybe it's just comfort or independence. You're going you're gonna to be your own person. Whatever it might be, whatever your sort of um, your, your go-to is in times of trial, it's a worthless idol. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. They, these idols never deliver what they promise, ever. I was reminded of that really um, a sobering story in world this last week about people who, excuse me, just a minute. It's about, there's a story about um, people who have bought the lie of transgenderism and who um, went through a sex change, convinced that uh, once their body was made to align with their feelings, a life would be great. And so one of the stories was of a man named Robert Wenham, who, uh, by the advice of his, of his psychologist, underwent a sex reassignment surgery in 1991. Uh, the Canadian government paid for the whole thing. Uh, it seemed to be a complete win-win. He was initially exhilarated. But soon he fell into chronic depression and was contemplating suicide. The writer says, just as suicide began sounding sweeter than life, Wenham decided to find a church. He found a conservative, independent Baptist church where he realized, quote, I've been warring against my soul. I was transgressing against God, imprisoned by guilt and shame. And so after 17 years of living as a woman, Wenham, now 60, has detransitioned back into uh, a man. He clips his hair short wears plaid, shirt, plaid shirts and slacks, and he prays for a wife. He wonders if marriage is possible and mourns that he'll never enjoy the comfort of his own children. So when he hears stories of husbands who come out as transgender and leave their families, and when the whole world is applauding, Wenham is grieving. He says, I want to shake them and scream, you don't know what you're doing. You're giving up your family for something that's not 
real. It's demonic. And Wenham said, quoting John 8, 32, it is the truth that will set you free. What struck me as I read that story is that we all have this disposition. Uh, we all have this desire to uh, realign our circumstances to our desires. When you get angry, uh, you're trying to uh, realign circumstances, make somebody do something that will align itself with how you think the world ought to work. And you're convinced that if you could just get people to do things the way you think they ought to do it, what a wonderful world this would be. Um, people who are giving in to lust or are seeking in some way to get a hold of the right circumstance because the right circumstance, the right sexual experience will surely make life work. People who lie are trying to manipulate and navigate circumstances and people around them because they're convinced that if we can align our circumstances with our self-centered desires and feelings, that's where we'll find life. And the fact is, of course, that's where we find death. That's how you lose life. Life is found in God, and that's where faith is so critical, you see, in those times of trial, because there's the choice, you're going to make the choice. You're going to either seek to realign circumstances according to your desires and, and seek to your cling to your worthless idol, or you're going to run to God. Those are the two options. And faith, then, is the option of fleeing to God in that exact moment. It's interesting, in um, Jonah chapter 2, we find Jonah alluding to this um, psalm, Psalm 31 verse 6, when he's in the belly of the whale, uh, he's tried to run from God thing, he, did, he, he went running after his idol, it did not come, work out well, uh, he liked his comfortable life as a prophet, he did not like the idea of going to Nineveh and, and proclaiming the good news to those rotten sinners, those pagans over there, and so he decided to make a run for it, of course, he ends up in the belly of the whale, and uh, there he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs, one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. You see, the, the problem with an idol isn't just that it doesn't work. The problem with an idol is that you miss out on grace that could have been yours. You could have had grace. You could have had kindness and love and forgiveness and favor and peace poured out on you. See, many people cling to their idols precisely because they, the, the devil has convinced them there is no more grace for them. They've sinned too much. They're too broken. They're too lost. And yet, you see, it's not true. The, the, the only grace a person ever forfeits is grace that they could have had. When you run to your idol, you forfeit the grace that could have been yours. But when you, see, when you turn in faith to God as your refuge, you'll, what you find is abundant Goodness. I love verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge of you, in you in the sight of the children of mankind. God has this storehouse, this, this, this magnificent storehouse of goodness stored up. He's put it away. It's, it's there to be dispensed, to be worked for those who love him, those who fear him and take refuge in him. No one has ever turned to God and found the storehouse to be emptier or the, the, the supplies to be diminished. God works his goodness to those who turn, for those who turn to him in confession and faith. And those who don't do that miss out 
on the grace that could have been theirs. I think just think of an of, of a, um, example of a, of a young girl who gets pregnant out of wedlock and uh, she's receiving all sorts of counsel to do the easy thing, right? Just go downtown, get an abortion. You don't have to face the shame. You don't have to face the, the, the uncertainty of the future. You don't have to lose your dream of going off to college and, and having your career. It's such a simple, easy thing, and, and uh, it seems convenient. It seems to work. It's clinging to a worthless idol, and, and you miss out on all the grace. The grace of turning to the Lord and finding abundant forgiveness and pardon, being embraced in a way you never thought possible by your family and by your church, gaining new understanding of the depths of God's love for sinners and, and gaining this blessing of a little baby who, who so often becomes the joy of your life. All that grace gets missed out. All that goodness is never experienced. I think it might be fruitful sometimes in your life to think about the goodness that you've not tasted simply because of the idols that remain. There's abundant goodness for those who turn to God, those who fear him, and he will work it in your life. So David's commitment is to go to God as his refuge. His concern is that God would not leave him to shame. We find that in verse 1. Lord, let me never be put to shame. Uh, verses um, 9 through and following, talk about the, the weight that David is experiencing, the grief is experiencing. Be gracious to me, Lord, I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and body also. My life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. One of the things that we've seen in the Psalms often is that our, the difficulties of life, the hardships of life, so often remind us of our, of our sin, our failures. Our rebellions, our wickedness. And, and David here just confesses, isn't it true that one of the heaviest burdens of a Christian is the burden of your own sin? And the realization that, that uh, we, we cannot appeal to God for help on the basis of our, our uh, goodness, our, our, our good intentions. Uh, David here, he's in deep trouble and he can't save himself. And he's, he's desperate, not only because he's overpowered by his enemies, but he's overwhelmed by his iniquities. He's sinned. On what basis can he require, or in a sense, uh, compel God to help him? And so he says, Lord, don't let me put, be put to shame. He, he feels his sin. His iniquities are real. His sins are more than I can count. The Psalm 40 uh, talks about that. My my, my sins rise up against me. They overwhelm me. And to be put to shame is not to be embarrassed. To be, to be put to shame is to be lost. So David says in verse 17, Lord, don't let me be put to shame. Let uh, the wicked be put to shame. Let them slip silently into Sheol. Uh, to be shamed, you see, is to find yourself on the last day standing all alone before a righteous, holy God a judge, and all your idols, and all your excuses, and all your false expectations, they all collapse, and you are there, guilty in your sin, ripe for everlasting judgment. That's shame. It's, it's the experience of being condemned and knowing there's, there's nothing to appeal to, that this is exactly what you have deserved, and there's no place to hide. 
This is what David fears. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. His sin is real, but don't let me, Lord, be exposed as a, as a, as a fraud on the last day that all my expectations were false. Have you ever feared this? Have you ever just imagined you in front of the court of God, in front of the judge of heaven, just you? Not your friends, not your family, just you. And have you ever wondered on, in that moment, was it, is it possible that, that instead of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, you, you will hear, um, I never knew you. And that you'll realize that in a moment that you were just playing the game. You were sleepwalking through this world. You, you, you were not awake to the reality of your sin and the glory of Christ. And, and, and you didn't know him. You didn't love him. Do you ever worry? Do you ever just have any fear at all of, of being exposed as a fraud on the final day? It's interesting to me that we so often fear things that are really little things. They're unfounded fears. We fear things, and we, it turns out that we didn't have to be afraid at all. Um, and, and, they're, and they're temporal things. And yet, so often people are completely unconcerned about this one very great thing that every sinner ought to fear. Where are you going to hide on that great and awful day? Where are you going to hide? What are you going to trust in? Is it going to go well with you? Are you sure? Well, how could you be sure? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are trusting, millions of people are trusting that their good efforts are going to be, are going to be sufficient for them, that their, their church attendance and their religious beliefs will be, will be sufficient for them. But yet that is not what David appeals to. His confidence, notice, is the righteousness of God. In your righteousness, deliver me. That was a confounding verse for, for young Martin Luther. Uh, the righteousness of God in Luther's mind uh, was not something you wanted to appeal to for salvation. The righteousness of God was the problem. It made perfect sense to Luther that God could damn him in his righteousness. It made no sense to him that you would appeal to God in your righteousness, deliver me. Maybe mercy, but not righteousness. You see, because righteousness is God's commitment to do the right thing. And Luther knows enough about God to know that God will not acquit the guilty. God will not look at a sinful man, Martin Luther, and say, well done. He can't. He's holy. He's righteous. So the righteousness of God for Luther was this, this, this great obstacle to his confidence. How is it possible that David is appealing to it for his? Well, then Luther reads Romans and comes to understand the gospel, that the righteous live by faith, and that God in the gospel is willing to punish, the, to lay our sins upon his son and, and, to, and to atone for them in the sacrifice of his son, and then grant those who believe in Christ a righteousness that they get as a gift, not as a work, a perfect righteousness. And that the cross, you see, makes it possible for God to be righteous and to forgive sinners. So, the, so it says in Romans, right, that, that God justifies the ungodly. He, he, he declares innocent and righteous to sinners because their sin has been atoned for in Christ and the robe of righteousness has been given to them. And so you see, the cross makes, changes the great impediment God's righteousness and makes it our great confidence. God's righteousness. 
Will not the God of heaven and earth do what is right? Yes, he will. Will he not be faithful to his own son? And so if you if you've fled to him for refuge, will God now turn away? Will God, will God uh, deny you? When, you? when you've come under the righteousness of his son? Of course not. He's faithful and just to forgive us all of our unrighteousness. And so we have great confidence then, just like David. If God has given us his son, then the righteousness of God is our great comfort. And, and that, that righteousness then becomes our rock of refuge and our strong fortress. Look, just read verses 7 and 8 in light of the gospel. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you've seen my affliction, you've known the distress of my soul, and you've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. He's not given us over to the devil. But you've set my feet in a broad place, a stable place. We've got a place to stand, and that place is called grace. And if you've come to that place, then you, then you know David's praise here will wrap up. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord. He has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. He's wondrously shown. David says, I was in a besieged city. And he was, actually, right at it for a time. He was cut off. There's no way out. There was no chance of escape. But that's exactly the plight of every sinner. There's no way out. The, the law of God has you surrounded. There's no loopholes. There's no secret passageways. The law of God stands, and you, the sinner, are in the middle of the besieged city, and judgment is about to come. But God shows his wondrous love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. We weren't cut off from the sight of God, and your prayers for mercy did not go unanswered. If you cried out to him and turned to Jesus Christ in faith, then the, the gospel comes back with the assurance that you've been delivered. And so David says, verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. Love the Lord. That's a good word for us. Not just believe on him, love the Lord. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And then trust the Lord, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. I just want you to hear that word tonight, particularly if you are in a hard place. Be strong. Let your heart take courage as you wait for the Lord. That, that trust David touched on in verses 14 and 15. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Those are good things to say. God, you're my God. And my times, my life, my circumstances, my fear, my pain, my loss, my present, my future, my past, it's all in your hands and I'm willing to leave it there. I trust in you. That's what faith does, friends. That's what faith says. Let these be your words to the Lord. And those, you see, who trust this way will never be confounded. We, and, and our confidence is, is the cross itself. I, I think it's fascinating that Psalm 31 was on Jesus' mind as he was on the cross. Did you know the last words he spoke before he died is Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. As Jesus walked this road of obedience for the glory of God, trusting in his Father, even though he's been through this, this horrific experience of judgment bearing our sins, he loves the Lord. He trusts his God 
into your hands. I commit my spirit. And, I, and of course, Jesus would have known the rest of the verse. You've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I think Jesus is, is already claiming the victory of the resurrection morning as he gives up his life. God will not abandon him. God will not leave or forsake him. And friend, because God was faithful to his son, as Jesus bore our sin, we know that God will be faithful to you. You can have absolute confidence. Jesus Christ, as he has removed the great obstacle to your peace and your pardon, Jesus Christ has reconciled you to a living God, and, and so there's abundant goodness stored up for you to, if you take refuge in him. Friends, uh, you know, I, uh, I find myself, I've said this to Joanne um, just a while ago, I, I just find that I, I more and more enjoy old people. It seems like we have more things in common. I, <clears throat> I don't know how that's happening. <laughs> but I just love to see old people who are, after all the, the battles, all the fears and the losses, the anxieties, uh, the heartaches, holding on to God and able to testify God is faithful. God is good. He never let me down, never abandoned me. He knows what he's about. We need the testimony of old saints. David here speaks to us as an old saint, a man who'd been through so much. But let this be our story. Let this be your story. This is where we, uh, this is where we, we make the stories that we tell when we're 85 years old. Right? This is where that gets worked out. As you go through the trial that you're facing in, in your life today, and you turn today to God, and you wait on him, and you trust in him, and you love him, and then years from now, you, you tell that story to your grandkids and your great-grandkids about how God is faithful, God is good. May God grant it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, that... Uh, you call us right in the life that we live today to exercise faith, to not give way to fear, to not give way to pity, not uh, question you, your goodness, not run to our idol, but right today in the difficult circumstance and sometimes through the tears to trust in you and to do so gladly, knowing that there is abundant goodness stored up for those who take refuge in you. Lord, we thank you that our times are in your hands, that we're not where we are by accident, we're not where we are because we took a wrong turn or we did something amiss, we are where we are by the sovereign providence of God as you work out your salvation in us. And so, Lord, I pray that this week we could walk in peace and with joy, and Lord, that, that in our trials there would be a wonderful experience of your love, for you've shown your wondrous love to us in your Son, and all the promises that are ours in him. So, Lord, bless us. Help us to live honoring you as we believe in you and seek refuge in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.